Matt, me just to reintroduce myself. It's been a few weeks since I preached. My name is Jonathan Gentry. Uh, I have the privilege of serving one of uh, the Navy chaplains here at Lejeune at 2nd Medical Battalion and 2nd Dental Battalion. Uh, and it's, again, an honor to be able to bring uh, the next message in our series on Philippians. Uh, so if you want, you can go ahead and turn your Bibles to chapter 3, verses 17, and we'll start there and, and work through the first verse of chapter 4. And it's not always easy to follow Jesus, is it? Pretty, pretty simple question. For one man, his faith was tested in ways that most of us could not imagine. You may be familiar with this name, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If not, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor who lived during the Nazi regime of World War II Germany. From the very early part of the Nazi takeover in the early 30s, uh, Dietrich was very vocal in his warnings of the party and what they could end up doing. As the years passed by, the German church there had to, had to choose sides, whether or not they were going to align themselves with what the Nazi party was doing or not. And many of those churches did. They lined themselves with the Nazi party. But Bonhoeffer remained steadfast in his beliefs, and he saw the evil of the Nazi party. He continued to stand firm in his beliefs on the word of God, as well as his support of the Jewish people. After his final return to, uh, to Germany, after trips to London and even in the U.S., he was harassed by the Nazi party and actually forbidden to preach, teach, anything in the public circle. And he would ultimately be arrested and charged as one of the conspirators in the July 20th, 1944 assassination plot of Adolf Hitler. And then he would be executed the following year on April 8th in the Flossenburg concentration camp. He would write this, and I think it applies to us today. He said, The messengers of Jesus will be hated to the end of time. They will be blamed for all the division which rends cities and homes. Jesus and his disciples will be condemned on all sides for undermining family life and for leading the nation astray. They will be called crazy fanatics and disturbers of the peace. The disciples will be sorely tempted to desert their Lord. But the end is also near, and they must hold on and persevere until it comes. Only he will be blessed who remains loyal to Jesus and his word until the end. And even in the midst of all those trying circumstances that we probably couldn't imagine, Dietrich Bonhoeffer stayed true to the Lord. As you see, that's the title of my sermon this morning. And we're going to see in this particular passage that Paul exhorted the Philippians to imitate his life by following Christ and living for eternity. Well, once again, that, that applies to us as well. As Christians, that we are called to set the example for others of following Christ and living for eternity. Before we get into this passage this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you. We thank you that again we have the opportunity to come open up your word. And Lord, I just pray that as we open up and read this, this short passage that you will uh, speak to each one of us, myself included. Lord, I ask that you would open our eyes so that we may behold wonderful things from your law. Lord, we know that your word does not return void, and as you send it out, it will accomplish the purposes that you send it out for. So Lord, we know that it's been a heavy week in our country, and even here locally as, as things have hit home here at Camp Lejeune. And God, we pray that you would just, uh, re just refresh us, renew us for the work at hand. Lord, we know that there's so much going on in our world, but at the end of the day, it's about following after Jesus. Because we know that one day we will finally meet you face to face. 
So God, I pray that you would help us this morning. We thank you, we praise you in advance for what you're going to do. In your name we pray, amen. So if you're following along with me in your Bible, like I said, Philippians chapter 3, verse 17 through verse 1, uh, we'll go ahead and just read this and then we'll, we'll come back and revisit it. So Paul says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So in our passage today, we're going to see three ways that Paul tells the Philippians to follow Jesus. And of course, these are going to apply to us as well. First, Paul says to follow Jesus when others do not. Follow Jesus when others do not. So look at verses, we'll look at verses 17 through 19 again here. He says, join in imitating me. Right, so from the beginning of this book, we've seen Paul. He's talking about all these different things in the passage, and now he's getting towards the end of his letter, right? We know that the original letter was not broken down into verses, so we wouldn't necessarily be saying, oh, this is verse 21, right, or verse 17. But Paul is saying, imitate me. If we were to go back and have the time and read in, in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, we already begin to see that, of course, Paul's main thing is that we're imitating Christ. He shows the example. But now Paul is saying, hey, as I'm following Christ, I want you to imitate me. He says it in several other places. 1 Corinthians 4.16 I urge you then, be imitators of me. In chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, verse 1, be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. So at the end of the day, Paul's not this arrogant guy. He's like, look at me, look at all I've done, now follow me. He's not looking for a million Instagram followers or TikTok. No, he's telling me, follow me because I am following Christ. And later on in next week, we'll, we'll hear verse 9 of chapter 4, but look at it down there with me. It says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So Paul is beginning to say, hey guys, all these things that we've said for the last three chapters, follow me, imitate me as I am imitating Christ. It's not about him. Paul knows that it's not about him. And he also says, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. It's literally fixing your gaze on those people who are also living before Christ in the right way, in the proper manner. Right? There's plenty of people who call themselves Christians out there, but they're not any different than the rest of the world, right? So what Paul is getting at is it's actually an idea that comes from Jewish heritage, right? If you're familiar with all how people, you know, Jesus would call his own disciples, this is this idea of following after a teacher or, or someone. And so these pupils or students would learn simply not just receiving instruction, right? Hey, hey here's the things you need to know, and that's where it ended, right? No, they would do those things. They would practice the example of the teacher, so the one who imitated thus internalized it and lived it out as the model was presented by the teacher. And this is what Paul is getting at here. 
Right, we, we've all seen someone, right? You've seen people do imitations, right? And for all of us who have kids or you've seen kids, you know how key this is, right? They'll see one thing you do, and they'll do it in a heartbeat. Uh, it's a perfect example. The first time I ever remember this was our son James. He's about to be three in October. When we were living in downtown or in Beaufort, South Carolina area, we had this little kind of butterfly garden where we lived, and we would just go up there and walk, and he'd like seeing all the plants and pulling them and smelling them and all those things, right? And I would just happen like walking like this one day, and all of a sudden I turn around, and he's like doing that. I'm just like, wow, you're not even two years old, and you're imitating me. And this is the same idea. We know that our children, we have to be careful what we say. I'm not saying you're saying bad language or anything, but sometimes even just the smallest thing, how we act. And it's the same idea. We know what it means to imitate someone. So what Paul is getting at here, he's saying, the Philippians, you're to see how I have lived my life, what I've taught you, right? He's no longer with them, but he's saying, model your life after mine, because I am seeking, I am running the race after Jesus. And of course, he understands that he is a sinner, that he's not perfect, that he's not this other, other level that they can never reach. He understands that God is still working in his life. So he is modeling a life that he wants them to live. But Paul also tells him, because of the fact he's not there with them anymore, to look at those Christians around him, around them, who are living also a worthy, a worthy life. So see that example that they're setting in verse 17. As we move into verse 18, we see that now Paul is going from, hey, this is what I want you to do, to this is not what you should do. He contrasts the life of those who are not to be imitated. Scholars exactly don't know who the, the people are here that he's talking about. Uh, it's a lot of debate on who it could have been. It could have been Judaizers. It could have been somebody else. But what is important to know is that they were not a part of the Philippian church and that they claimed, keyword, claimed to be Christians. Paul has continually warned the Philippians and many other of the church letters he's written about false teachers. And he continues to warn them even again here in this book about what they're doing, even to the point of tears. Look at verse 18. He says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as the enemies of the cross of Christ. Wow, why is this bringing Paul to tears, right? We, we sometimes think of Paul as this buff guy who's, who's nothing, he's gone through all these things, but now he's, he's crying over this. Well, the reason, because he knows what false teachers can do to the church. He knows the havoc that false teachers can wreak in the life of the church. And the fact that they actually claim to be Christians makes it even worse. And I was preparing for this message. I was consulting some different things and commentaries, and I, and I read this, and I thought it, it captured it very well. The scholar said, He now weeps, this is talking about Paul, He now weeps over them, not because they are pagans living like pagans who have never known Christ, but because as professed believers in Christ, they should know better. Right? That makes it even worse. If we want to understand why lost people do lost people things, well, they're lost. What else do we expect them to do, right? But if a Christian who says they're a Christian does those things, then we should weep. We should mourn because are they genuinely Christians? And then look at what Paul says at the end of the verse. He says, they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Whew, that's some strong words. And I pray that none of us in this room are ever called enemies of the cross of Christ. Because Paul, as you already know, he does not like to sugarcoat anything. Right, he's going to rip that bandaid off and tell it how it is. So these teachers were actively opposing the work of the cross. And if that doesn't send out any red alarms in your head, it should. Because the atoning work of Jesus on the cross is central to Christianity. And if we don't understand that, 
we are utterly to be pitied and lost. And so what he's saying is if any preacher preaches anything opposite of the cross, they are doing the work of the evil one. There is too much at stake to preach anything other than the cross in Christ. Look at what he says about Paul. He's clear what these false teachers are. Listen to what he said in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 13. He said, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. That's some pretty strong words about false teachers. Verse 19, he continues and says, Hey, this is what's going to happen to these false teachers. It's not that they get a slap on the wrist and move on their day. No, what Paul says is that their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So he, he understands that their end is destruction. And that's exactly what that means, right? That one day, because of their rejection of the cross, their fate is eternal destruction in hell. He moves on. He says, their God is their belly. And this refers to the desire of their appetites. Their, yes, physical food, but also sensual and other things that will take away from their ministry. Listen to what Paul wrote in Romans 16, 18. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. So these are, these are some pretty powerful words that Paul is talking about here. And he says, they glory in their shame. The false teachers boast in the things which they should have been ashamed of. And if that doesn't sound like our culture today, I don't know what does, because what the world wants to say is not sin is what God's Word calls sin, right? They want to say, oh, this is Kay. What used to be hidden in the closet is, they want to say, come out of the closet, and they glorify that. Look at, listen to what Romans 1.13 says about that. 132, excuse me. Though they know God's righteous decree, this is Paul writing, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Wow. One pastor described their actions this way. He says, This is the most extreme form of wickedness, when the sinner's most wretched conduct before God is his highest point of self-exaltation. Paul, Paul lays it on here. He, he is saying this is the end for these people if they continue on this journey. And he says this is why, because their minds are set on earthly things. Their, their focus was not on heavenly things. right? They focused on what was in front of them and what would serve their purposes and how they could bring glory to themselves and not ultimately to God. Romans 8, 5, and 6 says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. So in verse 17, we see, right, that Paul tells the Philippians to imitate him, to follow after me as I follow after Christ. And then he gives the example, right, of those who we are not to imitate. So what are we to do with this? Well, Paul, his original call, right, is to call, to call the Philippians to follow Jesus. That's the end of the day, the person we are called to follow. And he emphasized that in chapter 2, like I mentioned before. So our first and primary allegiance is to follow after Jesus, to imitate him. And we know that there's probably men and women in our own life that have gone before us that are great Christian men, great Christian women, who have lived godly lives. 
And when we can't emulate them, we can, we can follow them, see how they did things, and walk around and do that. So Paul is, he's saying, hey, yes, find those people because they help us walk through life, right? I'm sure we've had friends, family members, maybe, that have gone through certain experiences that we haven't, and then we, have, we do go through those, and they give us that opportunity to, to walk alongside them. Paul even tells Timothy to do that in 2 Timothy chapter 2, to find faithful men who will share that with others. But at the end of the day, we are called to follow after Jesus. He is the one we are called to imitate. And now, more than ever, I think in our own society, we are called to follow after Jesus when others don't. Right? Like I said before, the stakes are too high to do anything else. The world around us, even those who claim to be Christians these days, will persuade us not to follow Jesus wholeheartedly. I think it's an all or nothing. Like it, we, there's no half-hearted following Jesus. So the false teachers, right, they're not teaching the gospel, and therefore they're not teaching the authentic Christian life. They're ultimately preaching a false gospel, another gospel as it is often, often called in the Bible. Much like today, there are pastors out there that are teaching this. And I don't have time, that's a whole other sermon. But today, many Christians or who claim to be Christians only want to follow Christ when it's convenient or culturally acceptable. So, so this morning, my challenge to us is that we have to stand on the Word of God. We have to follow others when Jesus do not. And how do we do that? One way to do that is setting our mind on heavenly things, right? Because this is what he says. They're setting their mind on earthly things. So do as Paul wrote them in Colossians 3, 1 and 2. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not things that are on earth. And this leads great, right into my second point here, that the first way uh, is to follow Jesus is to follow Jesus when others don't. And as we think about thinking on heavenly things, we see that Paul tells us to follow Jesus with heaven in sight. The second way we follow Jesus is to follow Jesus with heaven in sight. Let's look at verses 20 and 21 again. He says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body, by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Paul, now, like if you see the last part of verse 19, he's talking about earthly things, and now he gives us a new perspective on view heavenly things, look towards heaven. And to explain this a little better, this concept actually correlates to the city of Philippi. Right? The Philippians were in this city, and they were not in the city of Rome. Paul is writing this passage from the capital there, and we see that this is an outlying city. And Paul is reminding him, hey, even though you don't live in the capital, you don't live in Rome, you are still Roman citizens. And it's the same thing. He wants to remind them, as they are citizens of Rome, they are also citizens of heaven. It's this already but not yet concept that we see throughout the Bible. Right? For each of us in this room this morning who have a relationship with Jesus, we are citizens of heaven. Right? We have a place secured in heaven. None of us in this room right now, unless you're just a holographic image, are sitting in heaven, right? But when you pass on from this life, you will be there in, in heaven yourself. So we see this idea. Paul writes to the Ephesians, Ephesians 2.19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, 
but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Wow. Paul now turns to the, the focus of what we should be looking at, not what the people are teaching before him, the false teachers. He is saying, now look to the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So church, the reason we are to look to heaven is because one day the King of kings and the Lord of lords will return in all his glory. And every knee and every tribe and every nation will bow down before him. He is the one who died on the cross and saved us from our sins. As we look there, it says, look at verse 20 again with me. It says, from our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior. I like how the New American Standard and even the NIV translate. It says, eagerly await our savior. Paul even wrote it in Galatians, sorry, Galatians 5, 5, for through the Spirit, by faith, listen, we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. The writer of Hebrews, in, in chapter 9, verse 28, he says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are, listen, are eagerly awaiting for him. And we get this concept, Right? We all, a lot of us here are in the military and we serve, and yes, maybe there's not as many as deployments as there used to be in the sense of when, at the height of, of both the wars, but it's that same idea, right? When if you've had someone or you yourself have gone away on a long deployment, and whether your family's back here or wherever they're at, and they're, they're waiting for you to return, right? I'm pretty sure I can guess that most of them are not just, oh, okay, sweet, they'll get back when they get back, right? No, they are eagerly awaiting for their loved one to get home. And they're at the airport, they're at the base, wherever they're coming in, and they are eagerly awaiting for their loved one to come home safely. So pray for those families who their loved one is not going to come home safely. We know what that's like. We know when our, when our loved one comes home from a long time away what it feels like. Much more should we be eagerly awaiting for the return of Jesus Christ. I'm okay if he comes back in the middle of the sermon and you don't get to hear the rest of it, Okay. If he doesn't, that's okay, because we continue to look for the return of Jesus Christ. Right? Jesus even said that, or the angel said that to the disciples as they were sitting, literally looking, having just seen Jesus walk, go up into heaven. Continue to look for the return of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 21 and see what happens. It only gets better here. Paul tells us about the glorious transformation that will happen because of Jesus. Right, Paul has reminded the Philippians that God will transform our earthly bodies to be just like Jesus' glorious body. Our physical bodies will be transformed into a resurrected body. I don't have time this morning to get into everything that that means, but I think what Paul writes in some of his other letters will suffice to explain what he's talking about. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50-53. through I tell you this, brothers... Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And as we all know, right? Our bodies are still, we're still full of sin. Even if we have put our faith, our faith in Jesus, we're, we're sanctified, we're justified. God has declared us righteous before Him, but we know that sin still exists, right? We have aches, we have pains, we have all those things. But at the end of the day, one day, when our faith shall be made sight, our bodies will no longer deal with that. We will have 
a resurrected body. What Paul is saying here in the, the latter part of verse 21 about his power, he knows that the same power that controls the entire universe is the same power that, John, or that God will use to transform our lowly bodies. Our faith will one day be made sight. John tells us in Revelation chapter 7, verses 15 through 17, he says, Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple, and He sits on the throne, will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For, in the, for the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will be their guide to bring them to springs of living water, and God will wipe every away every tear from their eyes. Praise God that we have a hope and a future, that this world is not it. It would be pretty sad. It would be pretty sad if this was all we had to look forward to, right? Praise God that this is not our forever home, that one day that we get to spend eternity with the King of kings and Lord of lords, may we fix our eyes on eternity. We got some time. Let's do it. Take your, just turn over to Revelation. I just want to hit this point a little bit more. I've sometimes been convicted in my own life that I don't think about heaven as much as I should. Turn over to Revelation chapter 21. We're going to just look at the first six verses there, and then we'll look at a few verses in chapter 22. Some of these we read last night, if you were here for the, the prayer and kind of worship time we had. In chapter 21 of Revelation, the Apostle John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That's us, church. That We are the bride of Christ. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And He also said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Look over at the first few verses of chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the, lamb, from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also, on either sides of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. That's what we need to be putting our eyes on, right? Yes, the world around us is crazy and it seems like everything, every news story is something chaotic and some world event, which it is. But at the end of the day, we know that this world is not our home, that we are citizens of another kingdom, of another place. So, so wait, when we follow Jesus, we need to do so with heaven in sight. 
We have a goal. We're running the race towards heaven. It's not to a, a nice 401k or a nice pension. At the end of the day, all that's going to go away. What we're supposed to run to and follow is, of course, Jesus with heaven in sight. So, so far, we have seen that we are to follow Jesus when others don't, as well as follow Jesus with heaven in sight. If you're not already back to Philippians, go ahead and flip back over there, and we'll look at our last verse for this passage. So the final way Paul shows us to follow Jesus is that follow Jesus by standing firm in the Lord. Follow Jesus by standing firm in the Lord. Look at verse 1 in chapter 4. He says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. And Paul wraps up at least this section. We're getting to the end of this this letter, we've got a few more verses to cover, but he wraps it up here, at least in this, this thought, this section, with showing again the affection that he has for them and love. He says, you are my joy and my crown. I, I long for you. He's continued to say, hey, I wish I could be with you. And he says, the joy, you are my joy and my crown. For Paul, the Philippians had brought him much joy, right? You, if you've at all been reading through this book, you, you sense that as a theme. There's joy in, in multiple ways. This crown actually represents the fruits of the labor he has done among them and how faithful they have been to follow what he has taught and even now imitating. But before he moves on in this section, he has one more thing to say. Look at the last part of the verse. He says, Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. And this literally means, this idea of standing firm in the Lord means to be firmly committed in conviction or belief. Right, and this, uh, once again, kind of this military concept of the Roman soldiers who would stand fast in a battle. They would not move from where they were told to stand. Right? They would stand fast in this way. And what Paul is saying, hey, just as the Roman soldiers, those centurions, the Roman guard, they would stand fast, I'm calling you as the church, as the body of Christ, to stand firm in the faith. He's reminding them, this is, a, this is paramount to standing firm in the Lord even amidst all the suffering that is going on around them. If you've at all read this passage, and even what Paul has gone through, they were, they were facing some suffering through the false teachers, through even the world around them. Listen to what he said again, and Paul wrote in Corinthians 16.13, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, acting like men, be strong. Church, more than ever, we have to stand firm in the faith, right? Individually, we have to stand firm in our faith. We also, as the church, the body of Christ, we have to stand firm in our faith, right? We must stand firm on the Word of God. We cannot equivocate on the truth of the Word of God. If we do, we will die. Plain and simple, the church will die in the sense, the local church, not the big church, because the gates of hell will never prevail against the body of Christ, the church. So we cannot be moved by the world around us. We cannot bow to what they say we should bow to. Right? You can go back to you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They stood firm in the face of a king who literally threw them in a big fire. We need to remember what Paul said in, first, in the first chapter of Philippians. In first, verse one, sorry, chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, 
with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. So now you're asking, okay, that's great. These are some good points. How do we, as 21st century Christians, apply this to our life in 2021? We've got several things that I think can help us. First, live a cross-centered life. And that's ultimately what Paul did, right? He, his mind was so focused on the cross, that was his, his paradigm, that was his vision of how he lived his life. If you want to know more about that, I recommend a great short book called A Cross-Centered Life by C.J. Mahaney. It's a phenomenal resource to helping you understand what does this mean? So what do I mean? Well, go read that book, but also it means always one. You need, we need to understand the gospel, right? We, we as Christians, it's not just enough for us to have known at that moment we put, put our faith in Christ as Lord and Savior. The gospel is for lost people, of course, but the gospel is for Christians as well. We need to be always putting that in front of us, saying, hey, this is what God did on our behalf. Because without it, we would be as lost as anything. So always put the gospel in front of you. That book, there's a short chapter of what does it mean to live a cross-centered daily life. And really, he, he walks through a lot of Scripture, like a lot of the passages in Romans, part of the Romans road, if you're familiar with that. So live a cross-centered life. Secondly, live a life of discipleship. This gets into that imitation part of what he's talking about. Of course, that means finding someone that, who you know is further along in their journey with Christ and going and saying, hey, would you mind walking alongside of me, teaching me? I'm a little younger in the faith. Paul did that for Timothy. There are so many other examples in the entire New Testament, even in the Old Testament, where men and women, they walked alongside of each other, and they were teaching each other how to become followers of Jesus, how to live that Christian life. Because that's something we so neglect in the church, I believe. It would just be like, we're, we're very good about evangelism, right? We can share our faith, we can do that, but at the end of the day, we, we don't do anything else with them. It would be like me bringing one of our newborn babies in here, because we have a lot, right? And putting a blanket down there and putting some diapers off to the side and maybe a bottle of formula or milk and saying, all right, baby, change your diaper and feed yourself, right? That's kind of foolish, right? Because they don't have a clue how to do that. And we do the same with new Christians. Like, hey, here's a Bible, read it, find a good church and do that. But we have to teach them how to do that. Right? We have to walk alongside of them. So be discipled and also be a discipler. Third, so live a cross-centered life. Live a life of discipleship. And then third, live as a citizen of heaven. Continue to have your focus on what does it mean to be a follower of Christ, right? Just because if we're, some of us were to live outside of the country, we no longer lose our citizenship of being a citizen of this country. But just because we are not in heaven yet doesn't mean we're not a citizen of heaven so how, the things that maybe cause us to be a citizen of our own country, well, how do we do that? Well, we, we read this book. We know this book inside and out because this is our handbook about, in essence, just making this up right now, a citizen of heaven, right? So we need to know this book so we can learn how to live as a citizen of heaven. Two more, and then, then I'll wrap this up. The, the, the fourth one, long for eternity. I don't think I have to say much more about that, but long for eternity. Continually put eternity in your view, right? Don't neglect that. Don't just lose sight of that. Don't always focus on the here and now. Be preparing for that day, one day when Jesus will return and we will get to see him face to face. And then the last application here is to stand firm in the Lord. When culture around us wants to say, hey, no, you don't need to believe that. You're wrong for believing that exactly kind of what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said in the quote that I shared. No, you have to stand firm on that. 
Right now, our country, we don't, we're not facing as a church persecution like the rest of the world, but one day, that may come. Right? It may come that this may be a moment we can't do legally and we're going to have to do it in secret. So until that day, we still have to stand firm. Being weird is not persecution. Right? That's not, if you're just a weird Christian, like, don't be a weird Christian. Be faithful, but don't be a weird Christian. All right? But stand firm. When there's hills worth dying on, be prepared to die on that hill. And, and I don't want to talk about the gospel and not talk about the gospel. Right? So if you're in this room and you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, none of this matters to you. It just is not applicable because this message is for believers. So if you have not made that decision to place your faith in Jesus Christ, why not? As the Bible says, today is the day of salvation. And what does that mean? Well, first understand that you're a sinner and that you're in need of a great Savior. And the good thing is there is a great Savior and he will, if you repent and turn from your sins and place your faith in the finished work of God on the cross and his resurrection, you can have salvation. So if any of you have not made that decision, please come talk to me, JD, or any other body in here who you know can tell you more about that, and we'll, we'll walk you through that. As I close, I want to read this passage again for us. But this time I'm going to actually read it from a little different translation, different Bible uh, typically, we'll kind of read several different translations as they're preparing. Um, why don't you do this? Close your eyes, and I'll, I'll, I'll pray at the end of this reading. But I want you just to picture this and imagine it. Same, same passage, Philippians 3, 17 through 4, 1. Then I'll, after I'm done, I'll pray, and the musicians will come up. Paul writes, Dear brothers, pattern your lives after mine, and notice who else lives up to my example. For I have told you often before, and I say it again, now with tears in my eyes. There are many who walk along the Christian road who are really enemies of the cross of Christ. Their future is eternal loss, for their God is their appetite. They are proud of what they should be ashamed of, and all they think about is this life here on earth. But our homeland is in heaven, where our Savior the Lord Jesus Christ is. And we are looking forward to his return from there when he comes back. He will take these dying bodies of ours and change them into glorious bodies like his own, using the same mighty power that he will use to conquer all else everywhere. Dear brother Christians, I love you and long to see you, for you are my joy and my reward for my work. My beloved friends, stay true to the Lord. God, we thank you. We thank you for your goodness, your grace, and your mercy, and the fact that we don't even remotely deserve either one of those things. But you are such a gracious God that you give that to us. And Lord, we don't deserve it. And Lord, I pray that we would be overwhelmed with that thought, Lord, that we know that it's not always easy to follow after you when all the things go around in life that make us want to question what you're doing or saying or, or the things that are going on when it seems like life is totally out of control but we know that you are a god who is in control of every fine detail of our life how many hairs that are on our head everything that's going on in afghanistan everything that's going on here in our own lives things that people in this room haven't even shared you know the re end result of those things so lord i pray that we will be faithful we will be found faithful to follow after you and others don't that we will follow after you with with a view of eternity and that we will follow after you and stand firm in the lord Lord, I pray that for each one of us in this room who has a personal relationship with Jesus, 
that as we, how many ever years you give us in the rest of our life, Lord, that we will live a life that is pleasing and acceptable to you. That one day when our, we take our last breath, whether soon or many years down the road, that we will be able to hear those words, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. We thank you.